Okay, first thing I have to say to you this evening is welcome. Welcome to Go House's Retreat, and I hope you enjoy the retreat and get a lot out of it. Um, I'm just going to give us give a basic introduction this evening. First of all, I want to introduce Jenny Wilkes, who will be assisting me over the course of this retreat, and she'll be doing some group things with you, um, as well as leading a few of the meditation sessions. And hopefully this will make it a much more integrated week for you, where we don't do quite a lot more than I can possibly do on my own uh, while we do it, because group work tends to get written out when there's only one person teaching retreat. Okay, let me say a few words about what we're going to be doing over the course of the retreat, and then I want to just introduce a few basic things this evening, because I guess you're probably all tired and exhausted after long journeys and possibly days at work and things like this. So, let me, let me just say what we're going to be doing. Now, you've probably seen from the title of this retreat, this long retreat, that it's affection, compassion and joy. Now, by any other names, some, some of those you've had familiarity with Buddhist practice will know these are called the Brahmaviharas. Um, often the first one is translated as loving-kindness. And the reason why I've given it that spin of affection, because is that is actually what's entailed in, in loving-kindness. It's this affection and friendliness between us and towards ourselves, which we're trying to develop. So one of the emphases over the whole week will be on gentleness and kindness um, to ourselves and to others. And particularly starting with ourselves, because this is extremely important, and you'll hear me say a lot about this as we go through the week. This is particularly important because if you don't have affection towards yourself, if you don't actually like yourself very much, it's like running on empty. What have you got to give to others? Have you got anything really there to give? And so many people suffer from a deficit of being able to give love and affection and caring towards others because simply they don't have it for themselves. In fact, often, as is the case, if you brutalize yourself and your own mind, then you possibly do it to others quite easily as well. Um, I always joke about it and say we like to spread our misery around. So if you have a miserable feeling towards yourself and a miserable reaction towards yourself, then you tend to foist it onto others as well. So that will be one of the main themes of the week, and everything, in a sense, builds out of that. So we'll be working our way through the week, looking and utilising some particular phrases which are there to develop affection towards ourselves and a range of other categories, some of you of which you might be familiar with if you've done these meditations before. But hopefully I'll be trying to get you to come into a relationship with what you're doing in a slightly different manner to which you might have done them before. And I just want to say just a couple of words about this because in the traditions, these practices, what are known, as I said, as the Brahma Viharas, the dwelling places of Brahma, it's a very Indian. Um, what it generally means here is that somebody who goes to dwell with Brahma has gained emancipation, has gained liberation in some way. It's, it's a synonym for being liberated. And I take that very seriously in the sense that I think these practices are aimed at helping to liberate us. And I tend personally to think what a beautiful way to be liberated, to be liberated through kindness, to be liberated through compassion, and to be liberated through joy and ultimately 
eventually equanimity, or unfortunately we don't have enough time to develop this particular practice this week. To be liberated through those rather than some kind of intellectual heady wisdom. Um, I'm afraid the Buddhist tradition has got rather fixated on wisdom um, to the expense often of these dimensions which are much more about relationship. Now you've only got to hear those three terms that I've entitled this week. Affection, compassion and joy. And these are relational terms. They bring us into relationship with ourselves and they bring us into relationship with others. And this is why they are of such fundamental importance. I don't think it takes too great a leap of imagination to look round the world and see a lot of its ills and a lot of its misery as a result of the absence of these things. When we become fixated on things like materiality as a way of gaining joy or pleasure or happiness or whatever you wish to call it. It does not provide it. Um, And again, I will be talking and examining this with you through the week. So these are really fundamental. They're very fundamental human values which we can bring into our everyday lives. And as I always try to say and try to make this seem of supreme importance to you, that that is where it counts. It's very, very well being nice and calm and nice and loving, having developing loving kindness or affection and that, when you're sitting on a cushion in a beautiful place like Gaia House, um, how long does it last when you get outside? That's the real test. That's the real, you know, that's the bringing it into reality as opposed to having as a nice idea. So we'll be doing work on these three facets over the whole week. Tomorrow, initially, we will start by not doing that. I want you just to settle down and calm down for a day. So we'll be doing some calming practices, tinged with a little bit of insight, but mainly attempting to calm you and settle you here. So you get into the routine, and then we can move into the practices fully on Monday morning, and then I'll be introducing the basic practice, which starts off with affection and the development of affection. As a means of helping you through the week, Jenny will be running some group sessions with you and uh, I'll leave it to her to determine obviously how she wants to run them. But in a way I would always say that any group session is your session. It's you to you to make use of it, the use of the time of being together in a small group as opposed to this large, larger group here. And there will be space and time for personal interviews with myself for those who wish it and I'll be putting a list up on the board on Sunday and the interviews will start from Monday and continue all the way through to the end for those who wish it. So it gives you an opportunity to discuss your practice, the difficulties you're having, even, let's talk about the difficulties, even the the bits you're finding easy, the joyful bits, as opposed to concentrating on difficulties. So it's a chance to explore and again, a chance to learn uh, from the practice itself. So that's effectively what we'll be doing over the week. These three things, just echo them to you again, of affection, compassion and joy. These three absolutely fundamental things. In the opening of a very famous Buddhist text, probably the most translated Buddhist text, it's called something called the Dhammapada. In this particular text, and it's on the opening page basically, if you read it in the English translation, 
The Buddha is saying, not by hate is hate ever cured. Only by love is love cured. Only by love is hatred cured, I should say. And this is a very ancient rule. And it's interesting that he's saying it's a very ancient rule two and a half thousand years ago. And what have we learned? That's the question. What have we learned? You know, even, and I think that as a phrase is not just a Buddhist phrase. It's a phrase that echoes down through not just religious traditions, but through humanist traditions as well. Um, but as a famous English author, Lawrence Durrell, said, what do we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. We don't learn anything from the past mistakes. We hear these things and we really do not take them to heart. So during a week like this, it gives us a chance to reflect and take to heart. And the word that's often translated as mind in Buddhist thought and practice is actually a word which also means heart. So it's taking to mind is also taking to heart. And we used to have a lovely phrase in English, didn't we? Learning by heart. That we really took things in, and often, I mean, I used to feel it was a torture as a child being forced to learn poetry. But now I still have this wonderful repository of things I can draw on, um, because somehow it's become an embodied sense of knowing these things. And this is what is meant really by, by taking to heart that it becomes embodied, that it doesn't just become a head thing for us. In our traditions, I think because of our schooling and the way that we're brought up, we often get to associate any learning process with the intellectual process. And often as a result of that, we want to abandon it and run away from it. You know, all too often I've seen in Buddhist centres over the years people wishing to try and run away from any thought processes whatsoever. Um, thought is not your enemy, even intellectual isn't your enemy. Um, it's how you use it and using it wisely, focusing it wisely. But the main thing and the important thing is actually learning to embody whatever we are learning. Because what we're dealing with is not just things of intellectual interest. They're really fundamentally important things that we can learn as ways to be in this world. And that's what's important about it. Ways of being, new ways of being. I always hesitate, and and sometimes I virulently oppose it, to ever refer to this great long tradition of Buddhism as being a religious tradition. I don't think it was. I think the Buddha was a very, very radical man for his time and was actually moving away from all the stuff and the trappings of religion. Um, but what has happened over the centuries is it's progressively climbed down and become more and more religiousized. But the fundamental teaching is about a teaching of the way to live, how we're to live in this world. These three things, which we're learning, hopefully, and exploring over the week to develop in our lives, are three important ways to live. They're three ways of learning to know the world. We often know the world readily through very familiar psychological states. Psychological states such as, for example, fear, anxiety, rage, irritation. These often form the backdrop to our experiences and actually colour the world that we see. We don't just see a world. We see a world, I don't know if you do this in the morning, wake up in a mood... 
That's the way that we see the world. We see it through our moodedness. And our mood is often that. One, say, let's take a very common experience for a lot of people of irritation that kind of is written into the warp and woof of their lives. So that in a way there's this constant low-grade irritation running through life, a feeling that life isn't perhaps giving us what we want, that things are not exactly how we would wish them to be. I don't have what I want. I'm not with the person I want to be with. I don't live in the house I want to be in. I'm not in the right... And I'm sure you get the picture. These are the sorts of things. And this is the irritation that can run through life. So in a way, what we're trying to do is find new ways of being where we don't resist any longer. Now, obviously, some things need to be, in a sense, resisted. But resisted wisely, not resisted from this reactive, irritated stance that we often have in life. So the development of these three facets are here to relax us into life and to discover new ways of being. So when confronted by that, in scare quotes, irritating person that you might have to work with, encounter frequently, then perhaps you can bring affection or kindness into that relationship as opposed to irritation. And that this can be done, I think, is something very real. And it's not just a romanticism about a way of living. It's a way of of being in this world which is completely and utterly different, radically different, from our normal stance of being, but it can be done, it can be accomplished. We can learn to be kind. We can learn to be affectionate. We can learn to be compassionate and learn to be joyful in this world. As a basic condition for this, for moving into this way of being, the Buddha emphasized something very strongly that gets left out of a lot of, I think, talk around meditation. Now, tonight, I know one of the managers will have introduced to you the idea that there are actually five basic precepts or ways of living in this world. And I just want to just take a few minutes to explore these with you because they are so important. Often they are miswritten, they're mistranslated, and we end up with something that looks like a slightly reduced version of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you know, it's boiled down to five instead of ten. Um, so we get don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, you know, don't tell lies, and don't take drink and drugs, which is only part of the story. <laughs> um, that these things might be implied in the original formulations is certainly the case, but it's not the end of the story. In fact, it's only the beginning. These five precepts which we uphold for the whole time we're here and hopefully you uphold them if you wish to move in this path, in this way of being in your daily life become ways of investigating our moral and ethical experience which is fundamental to whatever we do in terms of formal meditation practices slightly more informal meditation practices and I'll say a lot more about 
the word meditation as we go through the week. But they are the grounding dimensions of whatever we're doing in terms of the formal practices. And what I mean by this is they give us a way of beginning to explore our lives. So let me take the don't kill. It doesn't mean that, actually. The original formulation runs something like this. I won't give this for for all of them because it will just become slightly boring for you. But the first one runs in full translation. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Now, that's very important because it's obviously implying don't kill, but it's not just saying don't kill. It's saying something actually far more important, which is don't harm living beings. Because our relationship of harm can be far greater than killing. And I think most of us probably in this room, just as a basic guess, would not go out actively looking to kill something. We might have our our bugs that we don't like, our spiders and things like that. But a lot of people, even when they don't like these things, try to avoid actually harming and damaging them. But it's our relationship of harm that we can bring, for example, into ordinary human relationships, where we harm somebody psychologically, perhaps. We might harm them physically, but often there's a lot of psychological abuse going on in relationships. I actually like personally to extend it into the harm of also the inanimate as well, the way that we can harm that which we possess. We don't, in a sense, have a respectful relationship with the things that we possess. Now, it might be inanimate things, but often it's animate, plants and animals and things like this. So, just to cut a long story short for this evening, that's helping us to examine that relationship of harmful being in the world that we can do. And sometimes we do it inadvertently because we don't think about it, we don't examine it. So this becomes, if you like, a way of opening up that whole harming relationship that we can be in unknowingly, unwittingly. The second of the precepts is... To refrain from taking what is not offered or not given freely. There's a number of ways of translating this. So it's implying don't steal, but you you can think there's an awful lot more of things that we take. Um, One thing I used to encounter a lot when I was teaching much more in universities was plagiarism. People taking others' ideas (laughs) without acknowledging them and not freely offered. So it implies don't steal, obviously. But it implies all of those other aspects of taking things which haven't been proffered or given to you. And this can be minor. It can be minor from the paperclip in the office to the telephone call to all the things that we do when we, again, take, and I say sometimes, again, inadvertently, that which is not offered to us. The third precept, I think, actually says a lot more about our obsessions in the West than it does actually about the original precept, which is, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. Obviously, sexual misconduct, however you wish to define it, is there, 
it's very much highlighted, but the other part that I think is important, particularly we live in a, in a very, very sensual world, in the Western world, bombarding our senses often, more and more, greater and greater stimulation that we subject ourselves to. That sensual misconduct is literally that. It's the abuse and misuse of the senses so that we need and require greater and greater stimulation. Then we have, of course, I refrain from false speech. Telling lies, obviously, but it's not just telling lies. What is false speech? Is it exaggerated speech? Is it putting that little cast on the story that you're telling just to make it a little bit funnier? (laughs) Is that false speech? Now, I'm not trying to decide whether it is or it isn't, but really, again, it's a way of opening up the category of your speech acts, looking at them, beginning to examine them. Now, actually, in another dimension of the Buddhist path, which many of you will know about, something called the Eightfold Path, there's a category, a category called right speech. And it's usually defined by what it's not, which is very interesting. So right speech is not false speech. It's not harsh speech. And it's not divisive speech. And lastly, it's not gossip. Is there anything left to say? <laughs> That's one of the problems, isn't it? That we need again to look at these categories because what are they doing? What are we doing with our speech acts? In fact, it's not as simple as saying there is simply something false like false speech because false speech might be the intention to harm a living being. So it's related to the first. Because I might actually want to get you into trouble and now tell false speech, you know, make, tell lies to get you into trouble. I might try to divide one friend against another. Another way of harming. So these are not, in a sense, mutually exclusive. They run into each other. And finally, just to finish off this... We have the final category, which is I undertake a rule of training from to refrain from taking things which cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. Gosh, that's a difficult word to say at this time of night, heedlessness. Really what it's saying is don't engage in taking substances which will make you commit all of the above. <laughs> you know, harming, <laughs> you know, stealing or you know, taking what is not offered, sensual and sexual misconduct, and false speech. As you know, in many ways, this is not prudery. It really isn't. And one has to, again, look at the role of anything such as alcohol and that in our lives if we're attempting to do such a thing as meditation. Because the Buddha isn't simply being a prude. Like, you know, I can sometimes look at other traditions and say perhaps they're being a little bit prudish about this. What the Buddha is saying is the path of meditation, this path of these practices that we are attempting to do over this week, or the practice of calming the mind, is actually about learning to gain insight and clarity in our lives. And then to deliberately take something which causes the mind to be clouded. In other words, the two are pulling against each other. The meditative path is one 
which of course is about this clarity, this gaining insight, this really learning to understand what is going on. On the other hand, for whatever reasons, and it's not saying it's unpleasurable or anything like that, it's saying if you take substances, and particularly if you take them in excess, then it does the very opposite of what you might be, what you might be attempting to do in this clarifying process. So they're actually pulling against each other. So again, it's not a moral imperative. It's not saying thou shalt not. It's saying look at it in the role of your life. And in the case of each of the five categories, to look at them in terms of your own life. You say your action, your speech, and of course your mind in its clarity or its unclarity, depending on what we're doing. Again, sense your misconduct. That might be another drug that we use other than the you know, kind of the ones that we readily recognize. It might be another way of clouding the mind. So the precepts there are there as the foundation. Not as I really wish to emphasize, they're not thou shalt not. Remember the little phrase I use, they are called rules of training. Yeah. And training rules might sometimes be broken. And there is no, in a sense, there is nobody who's going to judge you on this. So it's important to understand that they are not just arbitrary, religious restrictions that are being placed on anybody's life. What they are are fundamentally sane ways to live. That is all. Just a final few words about that. Sane ways to live. This tradition, which we call the Buddhist tradition, wasn't actually a word called Buddhist at the time that the Buddha was teaching. The word Buddhist and Buddhism is a term invented by Westerners. But this tradition has had as its it has had at its forefront for two and a half thousand years the understanding and the transformation of mind. That's really its sole concern. And it's not concerned in a way with heavens and hells, but if it is, if you do want to continue to use those words, it's concerned with the heavens and the hells that we create for ourselves and create for others. In that, it has a psychological realism. In understanding the causes and conditions which will give rise, for example, to a condition which we might term suffering, certainly pain, anxiety, fear, depression, all of the things which are often seen as being on the increase in the Western world and things which I think probably most of us have experienced in greater or lesser degrees in our lives at some point of time. And really what it's saying is that when we understand how we bring these things about in terms of the causes and conditions that give rise to them, we can do something about it. We can find other ways of living. Not easily, and nobody says it's going to be easy, but we can find other ways of living which are conducive to much greater happiness in ordinary life. So that we begin gradually through practices such as meditation, but also through practices such as examining 
the conditions for our discord in life, moving perhaps much more towards examining our ethical, moral ways of being in the world, then we begin to move into a much more harmonious situation, a much more relaxed situation, rather than one that's dominated by tension. In a way, what we could say is that most of us live, and it's, it's a word that's crept into our language you know, over probably the last hundred years or so, we live extremely tense lives. You know, we're not relaxed. And we don't understand often the causes for that. We apply antidotes, what we appear to be antidotes, such as entertaining ourselves, engaging in the kind of recreational things that we do, getting all the material things that we want if we can afford them, and often we still are not happy. Whatever that might mean to you, and I think that's the one word that means it kind of covers a multitude of things, often it can mean peace and contentment, and the absence, actually, the actual absence of discord, disharmony, the absence of anger, the absence of the irritation that I spoke of earlier, So that we can move into that way of being rather than keep falling back into the habit patterns which are dominated by these much more negative psychological conditions. But we do it from understanding how those negative conditions are generated and developing and actually learning, if you like, to grow in our psyches these much more positive and wholesome ways of being in the world. So the Buddhist tradition in general doesn't talk about bad and good. It uses those words very occasionally, but only very occasionally. It tends to talk about the wholesome and the unwholesome. Wholesome ways of being in this world and unwholesome ways of being. Wholesome ways of being might be founded on something like examination of our lives through the precepts. The unwholesome ways of being in the world might be our falling into not adhering to something like the precepts. So it's really getting to know ourselves. Really beginning to understand how we cause and generate our heavens and how we create our hells. But not with a pessimistic streak running through it saying that we can never aspire to anything else but actually saying that you can do it. It's very empowering in that sense. Nobody can do it for you. There is no great guru, there's no great teacher, there's not a God who's going to sit on high and say, they can do it for you. The Buddha himself always said he could show the way, but he could never you know, get somebody to liberation. He could show them the way to liberation, the liberation from these negative ways of being in the world, but he couldn't give it to them. Now that's a very empowering process might be quite scary in some ways because often we don't think of that. We like to abnegate ourselves to somebody else doing it for us. But it's actually saying you have to do it for yourself. And where we begin is in the development of things like kindness and affection, compassion and joy. There are other ways and other approaches, but this is the approach that we're going to explore this week. And I think I'll shut up now. Now, I don't know if anybody wants to ask any questions, any practical questions, and I'll let Jenny say a few words if she wants to. 
Um, but I just want to see if there's any practical questions people want to ask about the week or anything I've just said, because I'm exploring a lot of these ideas that I've just kind of thrown out in a very general fashion in a great deal of detail in the evening talks and a little bit in the morning as well. So yes, as um, John said, my role here this week is very much to assist um, him in really being able to offer a little more uh, input than would be possible when, as is often the case, John teaches on his own. Um, so I'll say a bit about that in a minute, but I think before I do, I just wanted to really reiterate one thing that John said at the beginning about affection, compassion and joy, about cultivating these with a a real foundation in these being part of the attitude we cultivate towards ourselves. <clears throat> and that's not for any kind of narcissistic reason. That's as a, as a kind of basis for, for really practicing something that is potentially of huge value to all those that we come into contact with. Um, but it needs to start in our own hearts. And it, it always makes me sad when I meet people who take up meditation, dharma practice... And somehow because, I think it's maybe a particularly Western malaise that we tend to be quite self-critical, have an inner judge. And so we bring that to our dharma practice. And somehow meditation practice, dharma, cultivating these qualities, cultivating practices that are meant to liberate the heart from, from suffering and from selfishness and from anguish can so easily just become something else that we give ourselves a hard time about. And um, I would just like to really encourage you. And that, you know, that's not about um, not making a, a, an effort or not being committed, not being, having a strong determination in the practice, but doing that with a, a real sense of, of kindness to ourselves. Because sometimes it will be a struggle. Sometimes the mind will just wander off. Sometimes... All sorts of things will come up. And um, so I would just encourage people, whatever really happens this week, to, to never forget that this is about affection, compassion and joy. And it starts here. It starts in each of our hearts. Um, and I think then the practices themselves kind of, well, are just well supported and are much more likely to really take root in our lives. So um, to support that, obviously there's the, the program in the hall, um, a lot of time spent in silent practice, sitting meditation, walking meditation, um, and John will be giving talks every evening, I think, every evening, every evening, every evening. Uh, and there will be some more detailed meditation instructions every mor morning. Um, but there will also be opportunities to meet one-to-one -one with John to discuss um, well, anything really, but your experience of the practice in, in more detail. And there'll be opportunities two or three times probably during the week, I haven't quite worked that out yet, to meet in small groups with myself to talk about either what's arising in the practice, particular questions that are coming up, and just looking a bit at, at these qualities and their place in the whole um, 
practice of, of liberation, of developing liberating insight. So that won't start until the day after tomorrow. We'll put up some more notices about that in the board outside. So for tomorrow, this evening and tomorrow, really just focus on, on settling in. And particularly if you haven't been to Gaia House before, well, welcome to everybody, whether you've been or not. But if you haven't been before, just really you know, enjoy that experience of, of settling in. And um, yeah, tomorrow the, the focus is really just on arriving, calming down, and, and silent practice and then within the unfoldment of the retreat um, opportunities to talk about that in groups and one-to-one will um, be offered I think that's probably all I want to say for now okay. <laughs> <laughs> we could just leave it in the middle and we could just going back and forth okay what are we going to do now? Just let's do a little sitting before finishing the evening. So we'll just go up till about nine o'clock. And what I want you to do, because we're going to have an early morning session, and I'm not going to t- talk at the early morning session, not introduce anything further. So really what I want is, what we're doing at night, I want to, you to continue as being the first practice you do in the morning. That will happen every day. So when we have a day, for example, when we're focusing on one particular practice, carry it over to the next morning before you get the next instructions. So this evening, as I say, we're preparing for a whole day really of settling in and calming, um, calming meditation. Well, the first thing you often observe is that you're not calm. Um, That's the first insight that you get. So there's your insight for tonight. If you're not calm, just observe it, because that's all we're doing. Now, the way that we generally do this, and it's, it's just... Very simple practice. Most of you will be familiar with it. But I just want to emphasize certain elements, which I'll again talk about in the morning. The main emphasis I want to place is on being kind to yourself. Learning to befriend yourselves. Learning to hold yourself with affection. And this means not brutalizing your mind. Now, the practice we're going to do is focusing on the breath. Most of you will have done it if not all of you, at some point in time. So you bring your attention to somewhere around the tip of the nose and the nostrils and you will experience a sensation. And the sensation is very simple. The sensation of the unwarmed air moving into the body. Don't follow it down. And then you experience the warm air as it comes out. And try to let your attention rest on it. Just on that simple movement. You're not controlling the breath. It's not a breathing exercise. You're just remaining focused for as long as you can at the tip of the nose. Just feeling that gentle movement in and out, in and out. Completely uncontrolled. This is your life, actually. This breathing movement will be with you as long as you're alive. This is why it's such a wonderful meditation object. You can do it anywhere, it doesn't matter. Just making, just focusing on that movement, letting your attention rest. And I say rest, you're not trying to grab hold of it, not tensing up and trying to hold on to it, so you're gently, with the right degree of energy, letting your awareness rest there. Until, of course, something like thoughts or images 
arise and you'll often find yourself taken away with thoughts and images. And when you find yourself in that condition, don't worry about it. Don't immediately pull yourself back to the breathing. Because again, that can be very harsh. It can be very brutalizing. So you observe what is there. In the spirit of affection and friendliness, you befriend what is there. Be they beautiful things or be they your demons. Begin to befriend what's there. But just like when you have a good friend who comes to visit, you wouldn't want them to stay forever. Let them arise and let them pass away. And when you've done that, then gently, with great kindness, bring your attention back to the breathing. Focusing once again at the tip of the nose. Letting your attention, your awareness rest there. Until perhaps the thought processes arise again. And when they do, you go through exactly the same procedure. Noting, befriending, seeing. Trying not to get caught up, but not repressing either. And one thing to say at this stage is, it really doesn't matter how many times, even in a short session such as this, this evening, you have to go through this procedure. doesn't mean you can't meditate. In fact, the process is the cultivation of attention, the cultivation of awareness.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.